Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Why has the Middle East been such a mess for so long? Well, there are lots of reasons why the region is unstable. Um, the most important, which is that the countries themselves are not um, natural countries in terms of aligning towards ethnic, tribal, religious lines, so that they have uh, a lot of internal uh, incohesion um, to them. Almost all of these countries are, are fundamentally non-democratic, which in the short term sometimes might have some advantages when it comes to stability, but over the longer term uh, is inherently unstable. If I was going to put my finger on the single most important factor that explains the largest number of actions that are taking place in the region today, it is the widespread perception of American withdrawal. Our diplomatic uh, presence is second to none, our intelligence um, efforts, our economic engagement. But this perception remains, and the perception is, is not without merit. And if you're a country in the region whose security architecture has depended for many decades on the United States, are you going to um, depend on that in the immediate future? Of course. But looking ahead five years, 10 years, 20 years, these countries are not going to um, bet the existence of their country on the United States staying the course as it has. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Will Wexler is the director of Middle East programs at the Atlantic Council, a leading think tank 
in Washington, D.C. Will has served in government positions at various times in his career. Most recently, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense, for Special Operations, and Combating Terrorism. Will and I just sat down and talked about the state of the Middle East and how Washington should think about approaching the volatile region. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Will, welcome to Intelligence Matters. It is great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. I guess I should mention that I am on the board of the Atlantic Council, which is where you currently serve. You know, just full transparency here to to my listeners. I think just think that's important. Will this episode is is part of a series of episodes that we're doing between now and the inauguration on the key national security issues that are facing our nation and that uh, that the next president will face, President-elect Biden. We started the conversation with H.R. McMaster, who gave us a, kind of an overview of what's going on in the world. And we've now done episodes on both China and North Korea. And today with you, we turn to the Middle East. So I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, let me start by by asking you to explain to my listeners why the Middle East is still important to the United States, even though we are now, as a nation, energy independent? Why should we still care about this place? Sure. Um, you know, U.S. Uh, US policies change, presidents change, but our interests uh, remain stable, or at least long-lasting, until uh, there are deep changes. Um, one of those deep changes that has happened is that the United States, thanks to a fracking revolution, has become an exporter of oil instead of an importer of oil. And that's a real change, and that has important uh, implications. Um, however, that change can be overstated as well. What it really does mean is that in the absolute worst scenarios, um, nobody can do to us what we did to Japan before World War II, which is cut off our um, source of, of energy in context of a war. Um, if worse comes to worse, we can go to autarky, we can produce the energy that we need, or at least the oil that we need in the United States. And that's a really good thing. But that doesn't mean that the United States is, um, is isolated from the world. And it doesn't mean that the price of oil um, and energy uh, and gas um, in the world uh, doesn't affect the United States. And the reality is, is that that price is a global price. Um, and that price is not just dependent on U.S. production. U.S. energy producers do not give Americans a, um, uh, a discount for being Americans. Uh, American consumers do not pay more for gas when it's produced in the United States. This is a global market. And the reality is, is that a very significant proportion of all of that energy still comes um, out of the Middle East. And because of the nature of the, of the sources of energy in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia in particular still is um, the swing uh, producer and has very disproportionate impact on those global energy prices. And we saw that recently when, because of a dispute between Saudi Arabia and Russia, um, 
the Saudi Arabia decided to push energy prices into native territory, something never seen before. Right, right. Thus demonstrating their clout and their power in the world. These are realities in the world and realities that um, that United States policies have to take account for. So, Will, are, are there other reasons why the Middle East is important? One of our key allies, Israel, sits right in the middle of it. Sources of extremism, refugees, or are there other reasons why we need to pay attention? Absolutely. Uh, the the counterterrorism challenges that we all face um, are at a uh, low ebb at the moment, but we've seen them be at the low ebb previously, and we've seen them get much larger and more powerful and more directly threatening um, before. And uh, there's no reason to expect that that can't happen again. We have a real concern about the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, especially nuclear weapons uh, in this region, especially Iranian um, nuclear weapons. We have a real concern about, uh, about Israel. Israel is more secure and more prosperous than it's ever been before, but that doesn't mean that there are no uh, uh, threats to Israel anymore, um, and a lot of which come from uh, Iran and its, and its proxies. We generally, and for um, ever since uh, really the Eisenhower administration, have acted as um, a status quo power, trying to uh, return the region to the status quo when it's been upset in order to build a foundation for general security and general uh, uh, prosperity in the region, because we believe that that overall um, serves uh, U.S. interests. So we have a we have a variety of those interests which um, which aren't going away, and despite the the very popular um, view out there that uh, in the American public, that's also expressed by people on both sides of the aisle in the Congress, um, and almost everyone that was running for president, that um, the United States should do less in that part of the world. That doesn't mean that we should be doing nothing in that part of the world. And do you find yourself it, it, it more and more having to explain why the region is still important? Absolutely. And, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that and very understandable reasons for that. I mean, the, the, for the last 20 years, I mean, starting with uh, George W. Bush's war in Iraq, the United States really changed its policy that it had been following for roughly five decades before that. And instead of supporting the status quo, uh, became one of the most important threats to the status quo. And then on top of that, the, uh, the, the failures and mistakes in the implementation of that policy, you know, has led a lot of people in the region and a lot of Americans um, to, to ask, you know, why are we uh, still in this, in this part of the world? You know, why should we be spending um, our treasure? Why should we be having, you know, U.S. soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines, you know, die for this part of the world? Um, what's, what's really in it for us? The President of the United States, you know, President Trump, says this repeatedly. Even when um, probably at the high point of his administration, at least in this part of the world, when he was announcing the recent Abraham Accords between the United States and the United Arab Emirates um, from the Oval Office, he couldn't uh, control himself. He, he went off script and said, I don't know why we have uh, any of our uh, forces there protecting the energy resources anymore. Right. 
So, Will, big picture, why has the Middle East been such a mess for so long? What are the what are the big dynamics that are at play here that that have led to the continuing instability that we've seen for such a very long time? Well, there are lots of reasons why the region is unstable. Um, the most important, which is that the countries themselves are are uh, not um, natural countries in terms of aligning towards ethnic, tribal, religious lines, so that they have. Uh, a lot of internal uh, incohesion um, to them. They are relatively, many of them are relatively uh, new countries. Uh, many of them are, of course, um, have not too distant colonial pasts um, where there were lots of dysfunctions that were built into the colonial architecture that was created. The lines were drawn by European powers um, uh, and the Minority groups were promoted by those colonial powers um, intentionally. That is still a destabilizing factor. And then, of course, many of these countries are, uh, in fact, almost all of these countries are, are fundamentally non-democratic, which, um, uh, which in the short term sometimes might, um, might have some advantages when it comes to stability, but over the longer term uh, is inherently unstable. There seems to be a long-term struggle with governance here in in many of the countries in the region. Indeed, um, many of the leaders um, uh, did not, for for many decades, actually did not uh, see their their chief objective as um, as improving the well-being of their of their populations. Uh, that's changed in some in some of the countries in the region, and it will have to change um, if the region is going to. Uh, become less stable over time. But when you look at the the poor economic growth, when you look at the very high demographic growth, um, what you see is as a region that um, that has a lot of challenges ahead of it. There are very few things that are true for every country in the world. Um, but one of those is that the most dangerous people in any society are young men. Uh, you know, testosterone is a hell of a drug. <laughs> and there are lots of, uh, of young men um, in this part of the world that don't have avenues to channel their you know, innate aggression into productive, constructive uh, forms. And so they are attracted to destructive avenues. And then how important is the strategic competition between you know, Iran and its Sunni rivals with regard to stability in the region? It's, it's very important um, uh, right now. You know, if I can take one step back, I believe that today and, and actually for the last uh, five to 10 years or so, the most, there are a lot of different factors that are affecting um, trends in the region. Lots of different micro factor, factors that, that affect individual countries, uh, lots of local rivalries. Um, but if I was going to put my finger on the single most important factor that explains the largest number of actions that are taking place in the region today, it is the widespread perception of American withdrawal, of, of mm. American withdrawal. Now, 
the reality is that, uh, you know, unless you, unless you compare it to the high points of our occupation of Iraq, you know, or Afghanistan, in which case, of course, the, the numbers of troops have, have gone down from then. But if you compare it more historically, the United States really hasn't withdrawn. We still have a lot of military forces there. Our, our diplomatic uh, presence is second to none. Our intelligence um, efforts, our economic engagement. Um, but this perception remains, and the perception is, is not without merit. The perception comes from um, actions that uh, a consecutive U.S. presidents have taken. It comes from the rhetoric that one hears um, from the United States. Um, and, uh, and, and if you're a country in the region who, whose security architecture has depended for many decades on the United States, it, are you going to um, depend on that in the immediate future? Of course. But looking ahead five years, 10 years, 20 years, these countries are not going to um, bet the existence of their country, uh, the United States staying the course as it has. They already experienced this. They're, in some cases, their fathers to a person experienced this when the British uh, left um, in the early 70s after promising that they would not leave. And so this widespread perception um, exists and, and that perception itself is creating a vacuum that other actors are uh, are moving into. China is uh, moving in economically, uh, politically to a degree, but not yet from a geostrategic uh, point of view. China um, is in fact very actively not trying to take the United States position. They would much rather uh, free ride off of our security guarantees for as long as, as possible. Uh, but they're an important actor to note. But um, aside from them, there are three other non-Arab powers that all have historical legacy aspirations in the region and have all been moving um, very actively, very aggressively um, into the region. And those, of course, are Iran and Turkey and Russia, all of whom have advanced their position quite significantly and materially um, in the last number of years. Now, if you look back historically, when any of those um, actors have tried to move into this region, they've had to confront the historic Arab powers in the region. Um, those powers in Cairo, in Damascus, in Baghdad, the leaders in those cities were the ones that had the ear of the Arab street. Um, they had the armies, they had... Um, uh, uh, they. They um, had disproportionate power, not only in their countries, of course, but around the region. All of those places are at very weak moments in time right now. Um, uh, Cairo, Damascus, and Baghdad are, are unfortunately each closer to being a failed state than they are to being regional leaders. The historical European uh, powers with interests in the region are similarly uh, either not capable or not willing uh, largely to play um, any types of roles with the, with the exception of France. But even France is limited in what it can do and wants to do mainly to, um, uh, to Lebanon um, and to some degree in North Africa. And so what's left? Uh, what's left is a coalition 
that um, should have emerged a while ago, but for a number of reasons didn't, but is finally emerging now between uh, states, uh, Israel and the Gulf, that have largely been interested in their own uh, defense, but not been larger regional players. And they are coming together now to position themselves to be able to uh, protect the region against uh, massive encroachment from these non-Arab powers. Um, And quite frankly, that's a good thing because, uh, because a region that ends up being dominated by Iran or Turkey or Russia is not a region that serves U.S. interests. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Will. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So, Will, what I'd love to do now is kind of throw out some specific issues and get you to react to them and talk about how you think the United States should approach these issues. Okay. So let's start with one that we've mentioned several times already, which is Iran and its nuclear program, its regional ambitions, its malign behavior. How would you think about a strategy of dealing with the Iranians? I think the American strategy of dealing with the Iranians has to look really hard and learn the correct lessons from both the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Um, the, in my view, the Obama administration was absolutely right to consider uh, diplomacy uh, with, with Iran on its nuclear program. Um, it, uh, the results of that diplomacy um, contributed indisputably to positive outcomes on the nuclear file. Um, but there were um, some weaknesses with that approach. And one of the key weaknesses was the division between the United States um, and its uh, traditional friends and partners in the region, in particular Israel um, and the Gulf partners. For a sustained approach to diplomacy has to bring those partners along with it uh, rather than be perceived to be cutting them out. The Trump administration, of course, took a very different approach to this, um, a maximum pressure um, approach to, uh, to Iran, and of course, you know, got out of the, um, the nuclear deal formally, which I think was, was a mistake. I don't think it was a mistake to add sanctions on Iran at all. In fact, the nuclear deal uh, very specifically allowed for such sanctions to be increased on Iran, um, as long as those sanctions weren't on the nuclear file. And unfortunately, Iran has a lot of other malign behavior in the region that merit, uh, that merit sanctions. But the Trump administration decided to, uh, to go a different path. The big strategic problem with the Trump administration's approach was that internally, it never really came to a, a conclusion uh, about what the purpose of its uh, maximum pressure campaign was. At the outset, there were groups in the Trump administration, some groups that just wanted to increase sanctions in order to make it more difficult 
for Iran to conduct its malign behaviors. There was other groups in the administration that, uh, and I include, by the way, the president of the United States in this group, that, um, that wanted to increase sanctions in order to get to a quote-unquote better uh, negotiated um, outcome. And there was other groups that really saw this as uh, an opportunity to promote regime change. And unfortunately, the, the devil is in the details and the way one goes about constructing a uh, sanctions regime differs depending on which outcome you desire. The way that the sanction regime was constructed uh, appears to be most in line with the, way, with the people who wanted regime change and not in line with people who, um, who wanted to facilitate additional negotiations. What I think we should do now is um, what I hope uh, an incoming Biden administration um, does, uh, is opens the door for diplomacy, um, but uses the leverage that, um, uh, that the Trump administration gives it with the existing sanctions to try to drive a hard bargain that would bring our partners along with it. And our partners in the region, again, uh, the, the Arab countries on the um, western side of the, of the Persian Gulf um, and Israel, you know, they only one year ago, they all sent emissaries rushing to Washington um, because they were terrified that the maximum pressure campaign um, was driving them in a direction of a regional war with them on the front lines. They want to de-escalate. Um, as well. So I, I hope the goal is de-escalation. I hope the goal is uh, confidence building measures. I'm a little skeptical, quite frankly, about whether or not a new um, nuclear agreement can be reached. I think that Iran has turned uh, much more hardline in the interim. Windows of opportunity open and close for, for such things. Uh, I hope I'm wrong on that, but, uh, but I don't see a, a downside in trying. Well, second issue, extremism, in particular, ISIS in Syria and Iraq and Al-Qaeda in Syria. What should the U.S. role be here? You know, uh, uh, Salafi jihadist terrorist groups um, uh, are different from other kinds of terrorist groups. They're different from other kind of Islamic terrorist groups. Or they're different from other kinds of Sunni Islamic terrorist groups. What we find where of terrorist organizations that have this particular kind of ideology, um, wherever they are able to uh, achieve a degree of physical um, sanctuary where they believe that they can act with impunity, they have a 100% record of doing uh, external attacks. And, um, and that's just a, a sad reality. So our goal should be to deny them that kind of sanctuary. Uh, the United States has tried a lot of different approaches um, to achieving that goal. We've tried invading and occupying countries. We've tried uh, dropping hellfires from the sky to take out high-value targets. And what we've learned is that the most effective way of, of, uh, of combating these kinds of terrorist adversaries is indirectly, is working by, with, and through the local um, actors who can themselves uh, conduct these kinds of counterterrorism missions. Sometimes these are through military channels. Sometimes these are through intelligence channels. Uh, sometimes these are through law enforcement 
um, channels. Sometimes that, um, that effort involves uh, the United States doing nothing more than passing information and allowing our friends and partners uh, to take action. But sometimes it takes more. Sometimes it takes efforts to equip these partners, to train these partners, uh, to advise these partners, to assist them in what they do, and sometimes even to accompany them um, to, uh, on, on their missions. All of these are, um, are different fundamentally than direct action where the United States has to do it um, on its own and, uh, uh, and has to do the finish against these terrorist actors. What I hope is that uh, we don't, the United States doesn't um, look at the world as it is today, where um, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have, thanks to great work that uh, people like you, Michael, were doing for, for quite a long period of time, um, has been uh, diminished. Uh, and imagine that that current state will be um, the state in the future. It's um, as long as there are underlying Sunni grievances in, uh, in so many of these, um, of these places, uh, we will find young men who will be attracted to this uh, Salafi jihadist ideology, and we'll need to work with our partners um, to, um, uh, to disrupt their external attacks. At the same time, we need to do the kind of work to prevent the extremism from catching on, changing the, helping our partners change their educational system, change their, uh, provide more economic um, opportunities. Here, the United States isn't the, uh, the largest actor, the most important actor at all. We're not going to be the ones that's going to win the, the ideological battle for the heart of, of Islam. Uh, but we can, we can do things to avoid making it more difficult for our partners, and we can assist our partners as necessary. So let's keep going with with the issues here, Will. Next one on my list is the two-sided coin that is Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, right? One side of the coin being the reformer, the other side of the coin being the autocrat. How do you think about how the United States should approach Saudi Arabia? Um, we can't write off Saudi Arabia. Let's just say that at the upfront. Um, we have we have interests, um, uh, just like there are a number of countries around the world where there are challenges um, uh, to working with them. Turkey is a, is another one. It'd be a mistake to write off any of these uh, any of any of these countries, and I include Saudi Arabia in that in that category. Um, however, there are real challenges um, with with Mohammed bin Salman. If I can take one step back, though, you know, right now Saudi Arabia, no matter who's running Saudi Arabia, um, they really have three existential threats, and I don't use the word existential lightly. The first threat is from uh, from from a transition in leadership that is not yet finished. Um, Saudi Arabia, like it or not, is uh, is a monarchy, and anybody who has watched Game of Thrones uh, <laughs> knows. Um, the particular uh, dynamics that come into effect when a transition in the monarchy is not finished. And this is a particularly challenging transition as compared to other transitions that have happened in Saudi Arabia because it's a transition to a new branch of the family. It's a transition to a new generation um, in the family. And it's a transition in the fundamental way of doing business um, in Saudi Arabia from a very consultative, collaborative model to a more centralized uh, model. That's the first uh, existential challenge. Um, until that's complete, that will continue. 
The other challenge is the need for reform on virtually every aspect of Saudi society. Um, this one, as you, as you noted, uh, Mohammed bin Salman has, has uh, recognized in a way that none of his predecessors um, had. And that's a really good thing. It's a really challenging uh, set of problems that they have economically, socially, politically, and so forth. Um, the degree of reform that's, that's needed. You know, when, when Franklin Roosevelt met with um, Mohammed bin Salman's grandfather, they, I think Saudi Arabia had about 3 million people. And now it has roughly 10 times that. Um, Saudi Arabia is a, is a rich country, um, but it's a country that has lots of poor people in it. And we've already talked about the, uh, the challenges of having uh, young men uh, that are aimless. So there, there's, a lot of, there's, a, there's a massive need for reform um, in Saudi Arabia. And the third one is Iran. If you're sitting in Riyadh, as compared to you know, uh, 20 years ago, um, you see Iran uh, vastly expanding its placement and access and encircling you and trying to, um, whether it's in, in, uh, uh, in Iraq, in Syria, um, or in Yemen, and trying to build in Yemen um, the kind of threat against Saudi Arabia from the south that they've been able to build over the decades against Israel from its north. Um, so these are really huge issues, and uh, uh, and the person that has to deal with them, Mohammed bin Salman, is somebody who um, uh, uh, was not trained all his life to deal with these mm. problems. And so what you saw, most Americans know the story of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. That was a, a horrible crime um, in the old uh, line in, in War and Peace. It was worse than a crime. It was it was a mistake. Uh, because it's, it's really set Saudi Arabia back. But it was not isolated. It was the end of a year to a year and a half of poor, rash decision makings by Mohammed bin Salman um, on a series of, uh, of issues, all of which there was kernels of real, of real issues there. It wasn't, um, uh, wasn't like Mohammed bin Salman was inventing problems. But the the way that he chose to deal with these problems um, made the individual problem worse. And um, uh, one hopes that uh, MBS, if he does, if he is able to move from crown prince uh, to king, um, has learned from that experience because we could all be living in a world where he's going to be the king for many decades to come. And our interests will remain there for quite a long time and um, if he uh, has not learned from that experience that he's had, then we're in for a very bad situation. So, Will, we have only a few minutes left, and I have two more issues I want to cover. So let's try to do this quickly. The first is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. How do you think about that? Sure. Let's go through the Israeli-Palestinian issue very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I know you can do this. <laughs> There is not a very um, high probability of a solution for the Israeli-Palestinian problem uh, today. The only real solution, the only lasting solution is a two-state solution. I think that's, that's really clear to, to anybody who's, who's looked at it, unless you want to imagine solutions that are really horrific. The, the challenge is, is that the circumstances are not set at the moment for those kinds of um, negotiations to continue. I suspect it's going to require generational change. You know, we've had, we've had three pres U.S. presidents in a row 
um, Bill Clinton, uh, uh, Condi Rice under George W. Bush and uh, John Kerry under Barack Obama, uh, who spent a wildly disproportionate amount of their time um, trying to get to a holistic um, solution to this problem on all of which have, have failed. Um, I don't think uh, a fourth attempt is going to do any better in these, in these circumstances. What can be done right now are smaller uh, achievements. What can be done are, are limited agreements on individual topics that can alleviate some Palestinian misery. Um, uh, and I think actually over the long run, the Abraham Accords and growing uh, ties, a warm peace between Israel and the Gulf can actually help potentially um, set the stage for, uh, for better negotiations when the circumstances are more um, opportune. So you did it. Absolutely. You did it. Um, so, so you've been great with your time. Will. just, just one more question. What's the one piece of advice that you would give to president elect Biden on the region? Well, the one piece of advice is to really understand how much the perception of American withdrawal has, um, is affecting the region and how much, um, his personal relationships with leaders there will um, be able to um, impact their continued thinking on that subject. Will, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real kind of education on the region, which I, I, I think is absolutely necessary at this time. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Will Wexler. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.